Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly, rounding off Food Week. It's been an awful lot of fun this week. I hope you've managed to catch, as well as catching the bits on the podcast, but some of the other bits on the show as well, because we've just had a lot of fun. Uh, and if you look at my Twitter account, you can see where I've been baking like a Prime Minister. Uh, we did uh, John Major's Gingerbread Man, Tony Blair's Chocolate Cake, Gordon Brown's Rumble Thumbs. Bobbling squeak but miserable. Uh, David Cameron's pasta and Theresa May's scones. So you can see all those online as well. Uh, coming up today, then we round things off. We head to restaurants. We've got Tom Kerridge, the chef. Tom Kerridge just giving us the secrets of good hospitality and uh, how the sector's uh, coping right now. So that's our big thing coming up in a moment. First, though, as ever, we've got our columnist panel. No James Forsyth today. So we've got Melanie Reid joined by David Collins. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yeah, it's that time of the morning. We always speak to two of our favourite columnists. On a Friday, we're always joined by the Times columnist Melanie Reid. Morning, Melanie. Morning, Matt. Where's my scone? It's. I'll put it in a. I'll put it in a jiffy bag and post it up to you. <laughs> and uh, we've also got no uh, James was out today, so we've been joined by David Collins, Northern editor for the Sunday Times. Morning, David. Good morning, Matt. I'm hungry now. I know. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna eat a lot of cheese this morning. Now, Melanie, um, talking of rumbledy thumps, when I was looking up Gordon Brown's recipe for. Uh, boiled and mashed cabbage and potatoes. You wrote the story when it came out, and you were you weren't terribly impressed. <laughs> I, it's, it's so long ago, I can't remember it. I, yeah, I've never. I've never. I've confessed. No, no. I kept. You know, no. My mind wiped since then. No, don't. <laughs> I have nothing to do with it. Yeah, I had nothing no, to do no, with it. It's fine. Dissociate. Fine. Dissociate me entirely from this. I th- no. <laughs> Maybe yeah, I think I'm, I'm happy to do that. It was, I'm not blaming you in any way for um, his. I think you called it uh, uh, un, un, unsubtle peasant food. I think was the phrase it used in your piece, which was about right. Um, uh, right, let's focus. Let's focus a bit. Let's talk about um, uh, farmers. Actually, wonky veg. For be- farmers apparently are beggars on the subject of food. Farmers are begging supermarkets to take wonky, wonky veg, which has been stunted by the drought. Uh, um, where do you stand on uh, on wonky veg, Melanie? Well, I would like you to know that I once won, in fact, only three years ago, I won first prize in the local horticultural show for my suggestive carrot. <laughs> <laughs> um, can, dare I ask what it suggested? Well, I had three legs. Right, very good. <laughs> very good. <laughs> very, very well and what did you do with that afterwards? Did you, did you, did you have it embalmed uh, uh, or did you eat it? Well, you just kind of rip it apart and 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 and, and cook it. Yeah, yeah. And it tastes exactly yeah. the same. And actually, if it's yeah. good, if it's a bit wonky because you've grown it at home, it probably tastes better. Homemade, it's organic, it's lovely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. yeah, yeah. um, what do you think, David? Do you think we need to overcome our uh, our, our our demand for perfection in supermarkets? I was in um, when I was in uh, the Iceland store with the boss Richard Walker this week. He was saying that. That people say, oh, no, we don't care, it's all about the taste, and yet they know that, depending on what it looks like, they will sell more of them. I mean, it's a weird one. I mean, it all tastes the same, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, if it's in my house, I mean, we just, uh, because we've got young kids, we just have to stick all veg in the blender anyway to get them to actually eat any <laughs> vegetables. So it's kind of like, you know, it makes no difference to, to us, but I just think the amount of waste that goes on. I mean, we talk about food shortages, aren't we, and you know, there's a, there's a drought on, so farmers can't grow the crops and all that. And what we're not going to eat a potato because it looks, you know, it's got a, a, a knobble on it. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I just think we should eat it all. Yeah, and actually, and actually overcoming that because, like you said, what's the, why do we worry about what the carrot looks like? But we're only going to take it home and chop it up. Um, yeah, exactly. 
whack yeah. it in the blender. It's yeah. such a weird. It's such a weird thing. Um, so, supermarkets have, have they've they've kind of skewed everyone's understanding of what fresh produce looks like, and they've done it for far too long. And and it's become a sort of, you know, fruit and veg and our cosmetic exercise. They're kind of like Instagram. And we have to re-educate, you know, we have to re-educate the public that that's not how they come out of the ground in, in the normal way. And, but it's, it's been years of, you know, the supermarkets are blamed for this because they've been doing it for a million years because it makes them more profits. Yeah. And and it's 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 very sad. And now... We're going to have to haul back on some of that, and and I'm sorry, but they're they're responsible for it to a large extent. And it's, and it's interesting because the point you're making, Manny, about growing your own. Part of the fun of it is, God, that's a whopper, or this is a funny <laughs> shit. You know, yeah. that's the, the, them not being all the same is part of the the, the appeal of doing it. so. It's so weird that we then expect these these sort of strangely. Um, smooth and un, undamaged yeah. uh, things when we go in the supermarkets. Uh, let's talk about um, uh, the story that's on the front of the Times today. Over, say, overseas hiring spree to rescue care homes. Thousands of foreign workers will be hired for Britain's care homes this winter under plans for a matchmaking service to plug staff shortages. Once again, uh, um, David, our solution to everything is to take the trained and uh, you know nurses to work in our hospital you know, from overseas. They get trained overseas. Uh, and then we end up relying on, on on foreigners to come and do the jobs that we just don't have enough people to do. Yeah. And, I mean, <laughs> I guess that that's a big, you know, uh, critics of Brexit would, would point to that, wouldn't they, and say, look at what it's done to NHS. We can't get the, the workers in anymore. Um, people are leaving the UK to go back to to countries that plugged our, our workforce, uh, you know, shortages. But, I mean... Uh, Care homes have been awfully hit, you know, during the pandemic. I spoke to a lot of care home owners. A lot of them are privately owned, um, you know, especially, you know, I'm based in Manchester, but I spoke to quite a few care homes in, in Merseyside, and a lot of them were saying they're on the brink of closing because, A, a they can't get the, the staff in, uh, and, B, the staff they do get in, they don't want to do the job because it's hard work, it's responsible, it's not very well paid in a lot of cases, and and also, you know, we've got this situation where a lot of old, older people have died, you know, from COVID. So, you know, care care homeowners are telling me that, you know, the finances weren't adding up because the, the care homes were half full. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the the, the 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 that is a massive impact. And then and then if they don't have as much many people, they don't have as much money, and therefore they make cutbacks. And who the people who are left have to do more work, and it's a sort of vicious cycle. What do you what did you make of this story, Billy? Well, I mean, obviously, there's there's the big political element to it, which which is, you know, it, the whole the irony of Brexit and the fact that we we we've, we've we we barred so many uh, willing workers from coming to the country who to do a job which is is one of the most important jobs that there is in 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 a civilized society because it's about human dignity. It's about it's about helping someone wash and dress and live, and it's it's the sort of basic compassion which should undermine society. Um, and we pay we we pay the people that are willing to do this in you know going rates about nine quid an hour. Yeah, and you know it it it's it around here the the local care agencies are they're so desperate to get staff to find someone that do it that the. the they're offering up to even £25 an hour. Wow. And still, yeah, still people don't want to do it. And, you know, I bet you 
I, I was thinking about this. You know, I bet you if you are some ruthless captain of industry, some guy that's got, you know, loads in the bank and, 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 and runs factories and, and hires and fires, I bet if you asked him, you know, if his dear old mum needs care at home, ask him who's the most important employee in his life. Yeah, and yeah. he'll say his mum's carers. Yeah. And I bet you he pays them a shed load of money. Yeah. Um, 100%. It's, yeah, and, it, and I suppose, in that, and it's one of those things that we, people only really care about when they suddenly find themselves caught up in that um, in that whole system. David Collins and Melanie Reed there, and of course you can read them in the Times and the Sunday Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk/forward/slash/timesmedbox. Up next, though, is Tom Kerridge. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yeah, so throughout Food Week, we followed the journey all the way from the farm through the supply chain to the supermarket, where yesterday we met the Iceland boss, Richard Walker. And today we finally land on the plate, eating out, talking about restaurants. Tom Kerridge is one of Britain's most successful chefs. Growing up at a council estate in Gloucester, he eventually fell in love with the kitchen. He's now got five restaurants, two renowned pubs, his first, The Hand in Flowers in Marlow, was the first pub to earn a Michelin star. It's now got two. Oh, he's good. But he's also a vocal food activist, and he worked with the English striker Marcus Rashford on his child food poverty campaign during the pandemic. So I caught up with Tom to find out how he got into cooking, uh, the secrets of good hospitality is really interesting, and also the cost of living crisis uh, and how that's hitting. Uh, but I began by asking him about his upbringing and what first got him into cooking. Professionally, I walked into a kitchen when I was 18 years old like to wash up, so I needed money. So I ended up going into a, a local hotel, and I just I absolutely fell in love with the, the energy, the, the spark, the way that the space ran, the fact that you're working late at night, and there was kind of the banter of kitchens, you know, the, the Mickey taking the the kind of the adrenaline that kicks in of getting things ready and done, the back of house scenes that you don't really see before, you know, there's a posh dining room and a lovely hotel, but actually everything that goes on the back of house is all the bits that no one else is allowed into. Like it's like being backstage at a festival or behind, you know, uh, on stage whilst watching a band play, you know, you're behind the scenes. And I loved it. I just fell in love with that energy straight away. I mean, the, the the impression of someone who's not done that is that actually it's awful. There's just lots of shouting, there's big sharp knives, there's fire, and the reputation of chefs behaving very badly. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. It's incredible. <laughs> How could you not want to go to work? How could you not want to go to work when there's knives and fire and adrenaline-fueled lunatics running around? It's amazing. Like, it, it that, that was the whole point. It is... You know, if you want a nice, easy, cushy job and you want to sit in an office and go through spreadsheets and pick up the telephone and 
speak to people, then, you know, if that's what your viewpoint of work is, then that's cool. But actually, for me, hospitality, I, I've always liked hard work. And by that, I mean, kind of like the physical graft. I like the idea of doing something because the rewards are massive. After a really hard day at work, right? And by a hard day, it's hard because you're, you're trying to get things ready in time. You're, you're under pressure. You're adrenaline fueled. You're running around. You're on the phone. You're chopping stuff. There's heat. There's fire. Like you say, there's flames. There's knives. There's, there's stuff that's going on. So, you're, you know, it, it makes the heart rate pump. And, and that's just from being at work. It's not like somebody who does a really dull day job and then at the weekend goes, I don't know, paragliding to get an adrenaline kick. This is like at work you know, you have to push yourself and, and there's nothing wrong with pushing yourself. You know, we get to a point, you know, we talk about it now about a work ethic that people may or may not have anymore after being through the pandemic. But if you're in hospitality, that work ethic is massive and you, you need to have it when you're there. You know, whether, whether the, the industry has changed when I first went in, you do 80, 90 hour weeks. Now, you know, it's much more reasonable in the amount of hours that you do. But those hours that you do, whether it's a 45, 50 hour week and now, still hugely adrenaline fueled and hard work and physical graft and excitement and adrenaline and and fun and you know and, but if you're that sort of person then they're amazing because the rewards are incredible you sit down afterwards you know there is that relief maybe if it's late at night you might go and catch a quick beer with your mates you know at midnight you know all these sort of things that that action that fun um it, 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 you know it's kind of like this roller coaster and so that to me isn't work. That becomes like a really exciting way of life. It's just something that you do that you get a buzz from. And, and that's what makes hospitality incredibly exciting. It's incredibly buzzy. And then you get to opportunities if you stick with it, you can travel the world, you meet all sorts of different people. And it's wonderfully eclectic as well and really embracing. You know, there is, it's one of the most um, embracing industries that you can be in, you know, those environments. It doesn't matter on social background, economic background, race, religion, um, education. It doesn't matter whether, you know, sexuality, none of it matters. It's completely embracing if you're all there to do the same job and you all work really hard. You get to meet so many different types of people. And that's what makes it so culturally rich and exciting and diverse. And did you, when you started working in the kitchens, had you cooked much before? I was reading that, you know, because your mum was on her own and so you were at home sometimes and you were, you were, you, is that when you started sort of getting into the, the enjoying cooking? Or was it that point, it was a question of you were hungry, so you had to rustle something up? Yeah. I mean, I'd love to say, yeah, yeah, I was at home cooking incredible food. I was making soup for me and my brother and then I'd do a, you know, knock out a, a lovely like roast beef Wellington in it. But the reality was it was more like a fish finger sandwich and bird's eye potato waffles. You know, those are the sort of things that I was cooking as a 14-year-old, you know, when you're a latchkey kid. And, you know, my mum was there, I, you know, with a second job in the evening and I'd cook for... Sam when we got in who's my brother from school and I, it was the first experience of I think reward from doing something being physical practical like making something and you get something back in return but it wasn't the thing that inspired me to be a chef although I do look back at it now and you know my mum was exceptional at hospitality so you know she would always cook on a Sunday lunch right she'd do a Sunday lunch and it wouldn't you know it wouldn't be, it would be like a Bernard Matthews turkey roll but it, it wouldn't be like ribs of beef or anything like that but she'd always do like extra potatoes and extra veg because I would play rugby on a Sunday morning and I might come back with three or four mates from the rugby team and you know she there would always be enough that she'd always make it stretch she'd always make sure that 
you know, we, we were the one house on the estate that my mum, you know, the kids, we'd all hang around in the in the garden or at the bottom of the garden in the alleyways near our house or in our garage. All the other parents knew where we were. Like it was at my mum's house. My mum was always very good at just making sure that every other kid on the estate was all right. Like so. And that's that first bit of hospitality, I think, just making sure that people feel welcome. And, you know, I look back at that and I think that's probably something because it's a bigger picture hospitality. It's not just about cooking. It's about creating environments and making people feel that they can have fun and they're welcome. It's embracing. And how? What, give us some of the secret of that, because sometimes you walk into a restaurant or a pub or whatever it might be, and you can just tell almost immediately, is this a good place or not? And it's not just, I mean, you know, a warm welcome. One of my big bugbears is, is if they haven't got the heating on, you already know they've probably made some cutbacks or they haven't even thought about the fact that you know it, it it sort of creates the wrong atmosphere but what for you are the things the secret not I don't know, tricks but but making people have that sense of okay i'm not just going to get a plate of food here i'm going to get looked after this is the sort of place i want to come back to this is the place we're going to make some memories what's the what how, how do you achieve that when you're opening a, a a restaurant or a pub or whatever see i think it's funny that you mentioned the heating it's quite a, it's a really good point we have an open log fire, an open burner that sits at the front of the hand of flowers. And I don't think we've got it at the minute going because it's like 32 degrees. But even through the summer, I always make sure that you light the log, you light the fire. Because there's something about that warmth and welcoming of fires being lit. You know, we are, we're like as basic human beings, you, you gravitate to a fire, don't you? It's just like something warm and welcoming. So that that's really important to me that that makes it feel well, this is nice. It's warming and it's welcoming. That's true even before you get through the front door. You know, it's kind of like, okay, this is something that's really quite important. The thing of fire is something that's not to warm people off, it's to actually welcome them in and make sure that you, you know, ancient traditions of things being cooked around fires and people sitting around campfires and people communicating and, and building that kind of sense of comfort and warmth is so so important so yeah that's one of the first things that, yeah so you mentioned it, having the heating on again it makes people feel welcome you know it's not like at last orders and then turning all the lights on and opening all the doors and kicking one out you know those you need to make people feel that they want to be in that environment but actually a lot of that comes from building up staff and people that you have with you so we're very lucky the hand has been open um 17 and a half years and in that time we've got people that work with us every site within the company has actually got a head chef that's been with us for 10 years or more all the management the same and so we've got there must be 30 35 people in the group that have been with us for around about anywhere between 8 and 20 years and those people are the core to creating warmth energy atmosphere they know the building they know the idiosyncrasies of the spaces and we're very lucky because they've wanted to be in this industry, but actually more important than that, not just in this industry, in this industry with us, we've allowed them to grow professionally and personally and develop into amazing human beings. And because they're really comfortable in their job, that then transcends to the staff that they employ and the people that they kind of train and bring with them on their journey. So that when you're a guest and you walk through the door, you already feel that you're entering into some, a really comfortable environment because the staff are really comfortable. And, you know, I think that's key. It comes, it comes from the top, actually, of making people feel comfortable and staff feel that they, they're empowered that you know they can make decisions they're allowed there isn't this horrible figurehead boss over and looking <laughs> them yes okay there are decisions that have to be made and they do fundamentally fall down to me saying yes or no but the majority of the time i just let the guys get on with running it be themselves enjoy it enjoy being a part of the process and that's really important i think that's shown its value in standing the test of time and the businesses and the people that have been with us now earlier this week 
We brought you exclusive YouGov polling for this programme. They found that 50% of people have cut back on dining out in cafes and restaurants because they can't afford it. It's obviously been a very tough few years for the hospitality industry. Coming out of the pandemic, the cost of living crisis has plunged restaurants back into a desperate state. And they're exempt from the energy price cap, which means that lots of places risk the prospect of going to the war because they can't afford to pay, pay their energy bills. So I asked Tom Kerridge how he would describe the state the sector is in. It's in a bit of a limbo state, I've got to be honest. It's very, very difficult, you know, because we had the two years of the pandemic. The furlough scheme was very helpful for the staff, for businesses. Um, most businesses, you know, it still didn't cover costs. They paid 20% of somebody's wages, but actually a lot of people would have been topping up their wages because, you know, 20, it paid 80% of people's salaries up to around about £26,000. So if anybody was in your business who's on more than that, most businesses topped up their salaries because... You know, if, if you earn double that and you live, you, you're married with kids and you've got a mortgage to then earn 80 percent of half of your salary. It's like it's nothing. You know, you've got to be able to prepare. So many businesses took out lots of those loans to be able the civil loans to be able to stay afloat and survive because staff wages are not just the only cost. There's many fixed costs that sit in that business, irrespective of whether you're open or closed. So a lot of businesses would have built up debt. So there's kind of like this deficit and debt repayment that's got to be paid. But there's an operational point of view where many people are coming back into the business. Lots of people are going out to eat and drink and thoroughly enjoying, I suppose, that release of the pandemic. People have got a lot, you know, consumer have got a lot, quite a few people had a lot of money saved up. They hadn't spent it. They wanted to go out and enjoy themselves. So there is a demand. And now it's kind of flipping into the other way, you know, in terms of inflation, in terms of the rising food costs uh, and the reality, the living crisis. In terms of inflation, I think the reality call is around about 10% worse off than they were pre-pandemic, which then has a knock-on effect on businesses because businesses, people have got less money, but the cost is coming into the business, which is massive. So, you know, for example, my butter has over doubled price in the last month. So, you know, as opposed to be £23 a box, it's now £48 a box. I mean, it's huge, you know. And those, you know, if all of our food prices double, I mean, it just makes no money. Food cost into most restaurants is around about 30% of turnover of revenue. And you go, okay, so, but if that doubles to 60% of revenue, I mean, it's just, you just can't operate. Most businesses may well operate at 10% EBITDA, which is great for hospitality. If they can do that, then they're doing really well. But, you know, that profit margin isn't actually very big. And it doesn't matter if it's busy or expensive. It doesn't mean that it's making lots of money. It's busy and expensive because it's just trying to get those percentages in line where food costs is at 30%, wages are anywhere between 25 and 40%, depending on the business. Then you have all your fixed costs that are coming in, your rent, your rates, telephone. And then all of those sort of things start, the moment that all of those things start going up, it becomes quite difficult then for places to operate if those percentage margins are being chipped away at. So, I think as an industry, it's going to be a very, very difficult couple of years because that debt burden now has to be repaid with the increased cost going in and consumer confidence now beginning to get rocked, which I think we'll start seeing come October when the fuel bill um, price cap changes yet again. And that's when everyone starts turning on their central heating. So I think all of a sudden it becomes, I think it's going to be a very difficult winter and early spring next year. I think probably all the way through until... October 23, November 23 is probably, I, I can't see getting any better. I, I can't see getting any better until then. I, I just, I think it's going to be very, very difficult. 
But the good thing about hospitality is we are very fluid. We are quite good at manipulating and moving and flowing. But I do think it will it will be a very, very difficult couple of years moving forward. One of the things we've been looking at this week is sort of every stage of the food process, whether it's on farms where they're, you know, the farmers are saying, well, all their input costs are going up as well. You've got clearly the, the, the pressure of what's happening in Ukraine. That's driving up prices as well. The processors can't find people to go and, you know, harvest the crops, uh, you know, in supermarkets, they're seeing their prices going up, but, they, you know, they realise that their their customers are struggling. Sort of at every point of this food chain, if you like, there are massive pressures. And I just wonder whether you think, you think sort of as a country, whether, you know, whether it's political leaders, business or whatever, are we sort of gripped enough by this? Because you were sort of creating a perfect storm where, like you said, over the next 12 months, People are, you know, people are literally not to be able to afford to eat. No, it's going to be very difficult. So very sadly, you know, we, we have more food banks in this country than we have McDonald's and people have to make that very serious decision about whether they buy food or fuel. And those are real conversations that people are actually having. And, you know, the reality of it is terrifying and awful. And yes, it is all politically led. It's, it, you know, and without getting on my high horse too much there's not a single positive for my industry about brexit not not a single thing you know everything has been very poorly misjudged um and worded and worked through for for brexit for um for for hospitality there you know there isn't a single thing there that uh, um, leads to a, a positive uplift um however the reality of it is it, it's here so we have to deal with it um, but the only way you can start dealing with it is until we start admitting that it's not right. It's There are big issues and big problems here that we need to face up to rather than just telling everybody we got Brexit done. That isn't the truth. What we did is set fire to a load of stuff and now we need to try and put it out and work out how we rebuild it. You know, there's no point in pretending that it hasn't happened. But the reality of it is we've got to go, right, how do we work through the food crisis? How do we work through costs? How do we work through the freedom of movement of people? You know, we're, we're we, we bang on about being supportive of British farmers. However, the problem we've got, and we're trying to raise the standards, and we can we can spin it as much as we want, but we can raise the standards of British farming now that we're released from the handcuffs of the EU, which is all very good. But you drive the standards of British farming higher. That's an increased cost. Whilst at the same point, we're doing trade deals with Australia, America that we're trying to get over the line, India, where um, food and processed foods are much more allowed within being part of that trade process so that you know you're going to get chlorine fed chicken mass um, and intensive farmed product coming into the uk from overseas like australia like uh, india where it isn't european based because we're not trading with them which then undercuts everything that we do regarding british farming and the reality is that everybody you know when it comes to saving money and the process of food and the reality of eating you know seven days a week is that people will be looking for the cheaper alternatives all of those sudden those cheaper alternatives are now coming from australia rather than europe and it undermines all the hard work for British farming again. So, you know, without then providing the subsidies. So we are in a huge catastrophic issue unless we admit something has gone wrong and we need to face up to the realities of it rather than just telling everyone we got Brexit done. And, you know, and until, until politically that is dealt with, there isn't much else that we can do about it, you know, apart from keep banging the drum and saying to people, this is, this is going to get worse until we get, unless, you know, unless we, the reality that we get to grips with it. Yeah, well, hopefully, hopefully that message will be uh, heard. Tom, I just want to end on a slightly more. 
positive or at least interesting uh, note. Um, there were so many food fashions come and go, froths here and smears there and chorizo there and sour or whatever. What, what's the current thing? What's the current thing that you're seeing a lot of that's going to be sort of food trends happening in the next few months this year? Well, there's a lot that has been moved into things like Korean barbecue and those kind yeah. of Southern Asian kind of uh, spicing and flavouring that um, isn't always about warmth and heat, that fermentation, fermented chilli paste and things like that that work really well. But that then comes into um, the idea of it being cooked on coals and barbecue. And that's something that we, is being rapidly growing within this country in the last 10 years of you know people cooking outdoors you know whether it's like egg style barbecues and because of lockdown a lot more people were cooking outdoors and that's amazing because it's not just you know when it's not now just about burgers and sausages there's so many different things whether it's fruit whether it's vegetables whether it is you know different styles of cooking and slow cooking so I, th- I think the barbecue movement or that outdoor cooking style of movement where you're getting flavor from coals and wood I think is here to stay massively and I, and I think that's that's one of those trends that um, set out its stall quite firm and everyone's kind of got really well into it so yeah I, I, that's definitely one that's going to we're going to see a lot more of. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.